Hello and welcome to Equipping the Saints. I'm Ryan, and thank you for joining us today. This is our last week in discussing science in the Bible. And as promised, this episode is going to be about science in the Bible in the New Testament. So without any further introduction, let's get started. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 6. Look with me at verses 28 through 30. This may seem familiar to you. And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? If you were to put this scripture next to Job chapter 40, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and Genesis chapter 1, we see a common thread, which is the aspect of beauty. Beauty surrounds us, right? We know that God made everything very good, and we see wonderful things in creation. We see beautiful sunrises and sunsets, we see mountains, we see the oceans, we see gemstones, we see bright flowers in a field, birds of all colors and sizes. So beauty is something that cannot be explained by science. Beauty is mysterious to evolutionists especially. Because why? Because beauty is something that comes from someone that someone else recognizes as being beautiful. Scripture reveals to us that God created beautiful things for our benefit and for his glory. But science simply cannot understand recognizing beauty because it is in the same vein as emotions. And emotions are something that science simply just cannot understand. Where do emotions come from? Matter and particles and things like that don't have feelings. They are simply what they are. So how is it that we can see things and to universally agree that something is beautiful? It takes somebody instilling this value into our very soul, and that is what God did. Since he made us in his own image, we are able to see things in the way that he desires. And so things that are ugly are ugly. Things that are beautiful are beautiful. And God purposely made his creation beautiful for our enjoyment. On this same vein of thought, let's go to Matthew chapter 22. If science and evolution cannot understand how we can recognize beauty, or how emotions come into play, then how do we explain love? That cannot be scientifically explained. But let's see what the Bible says. Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now, I don't like jumping around throughout the Bible, 
but to make sure that we don't lose this thought, turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. Let's look at verses 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. This is why Jesus declared that the two greatest commandments are loving God and loving man, because God is love, and God is the creator of and originator of all love. So again, science cannot explain love. And yet God's word reveals that the very purpose of our existence is to know and love God and our fellow man. Because God is love, and because we were created in his image, we need to be reflecting his love to the world and sending it back to God. In our hearts, in our attitudes, in our words, in all of our being. Let's go back to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 10. But let's look at verse 33. And this is the story of the Good Samaritan, but it's not about the story itself we're looking at, but something within it. It says, But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion, and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. So what's important about this piece of scripture, scientifically, is that it's stating that oil and wine are good for cleansing wounds. So Jesus is telling us about this Samaritan man as an object lesson who bandaged this person using olive oil and wine. Wine contains something called ethyl alcohol and traces of methyl alcohol. And so why this is important is because Wine that includes this alcohol is a good disinfectant. So wine is used to disinfect things. Olive oil is also a good disinfectant, and it also does other things, like moisturizing the skin, or sun protection, or even as a soothing lotion. This is common knowledge to us today, right? But even back 2,000 years ago, this was common knowledge. But somewhere in between there, we forgot or we lost track of this. Because during the Middle Ages, and right up until the early 20th century, millions of people died because they did not know how to treat and protect open wounds. And yet, as far back as the book of Luke, which happened 2,000 years ago, Jesus himself is stating that these things are natural remedies for treating infections, as well as open wounds. So, if you're in need of 
healing an open wound and you don't have any particular medications on hand or any pharmaceutical remedies, you can always use something like this, wine and olive oil. Turn with me to chapter 17 of Luke. Look with me at verses 34 through 36. It says, I tell you, on that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken and the other will be left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other will be left. Now, this one may be a little obscure at first, and we need to examine this a little bit closer to catch what Jesus is saying here. So, scientifically, what this is saying is that Scripture is assuming and understanding that we live on a revolving spherical earth. So, what Jesus is saying is that at a certain time, and what he's referring to here is the rapture. At the time of the rapture, There will be people sleeping, and there will be people awake doing activities. And back then, people didn't have night jobs like we do today. People worked in the day and slept at night. So what he's saying is that at his return, some would be asleep at night, while others would be looking at daytime activities in the field. So this is a clear indication that part of the earth is day and part of the earth is night simultaneously like we understand it today. So Jesus, naturally being the creator of all things, understood this, and he explained it in such a way as to paint the reality of the spherical earth that we live on. Let's go now to the book of John, chapter 15. Let's read verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. Have you ever heard of Darwin's theory of the survival of the fittest? That philosophy is completely contrary to the reality that this is what our Christ, what our God, expects from us. He expects us to have noble behavior. And the Bible is full of that, isn't it? It's full of people that have endangered or sacrificed themselves for another. But if we follow the doctrines of evolution, That completely contradicts it. How is it possible that we would want to sacrifice our life for someone else when science is telling us that we came to this point in history because of survival of the fittest, among other things? It just doesn't match. And so the Bible is true in how it describes noble behavior. It is a gift from God, and God wants us to live in a sacrificial kind of love with him, as well as with our fellow man. Let's turn to the book of Acts, chapter 14. Look with me at verse 17. And yet he did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. This scripture, yet again, is talking about something that evolution cannot understand and cannot explain. How is it that we, as creatures, experience joy and gladness? Evolution simply cannot explain emotions. To them, matter and energy 
should not feel anything. But what Scripture says is that God puts gladness in our heart. And ultimately, joy is found only in our Creator's presence. As Psalm 16 would say, in your presence is fullness of joy. So just like everything else, it is a gift from God. Let's go to Romans chapter 1. But while this section of Scripture can be kind of lengthy for the sake of time and for the task at hand, I'm only going to read from verses 24 through 27. It says, Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. I highly recommend reading the entire Romans chapter 1, and a lot of what's going on in the world today will make a lot more sense. 2,000 years ago, he said that this was going to be the case, and here it is. So in this snippet of scripture that I read, there's two things to pull out of here. One is that the Holy Spirit is warning us about radical environmentalism well ahead of time. 2,000 years ago, when Paul wrote this, God's word stated that many would worship and serve the creature or the creation rather than the creator. And so today, these naturalists often refer to the earth as Mother Earth or that it has its own soul, and naturalism is ultimately enshrined. And so we have this climate change movement that is under the guise of this, and we have all this other stuff going on to where you see people are worshiping the creature rather than the creator. So the Bible anticipated that. But the other thing is that there are consequences to moral depravity. So the whole section of scripture about that would be verses 20 through 32, but I took that particular section of scripture for a specific reason. Because it's warning that things like homosexuality, pornography, all of those different things are going to cause some sort of consequence. All of those things are contrary to God's design. And it says very clearly, especially when it comes to men, it says that men will be lusting after other men, committing indecent acts. And we know that those are unnatural. We know those are, in God's eyes, completely sinful. And they will receive in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Personally, what I think this alludes to is sexually transmitted diseases. Sexually transmitted diseases did not exist until these perversions started becoming more prevalent. Wouldn't you agree? You don't see normal, healthy people 
having these problems because that is not how they originate. They originate by going against God's natural design for sexual function. But apart from this piece in particular, the Bible is warning us that mankind is rejecting actively the overwhelming evidence that there is a creator. And because they are rejecting God, there will be lawlessness. And since the theory of evolution has swept the globe, all of these disgusting things like globalism, abortion, environmentalism, pornography, genocide, all of these have risen sharply because they are an ungodly belief. They are unscientific in their own right. And they are the result of lawlessness. So no wonder we're in the state we're in because this world has actively continued to reject the creator. Flip a page over to chapter 2 of Romans. Let's look at verses 14 and 15. It says, For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, resulting in their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So what this is talking about is the concept of the human conscience. Do you understand what he's saying here? Most of the people that were not Jewish did not know what the law of Moses was. And for us, we know that the law of Moses was a set of decrees and commands by God to teach us the difference between right and wrong, to show us what God loves, what God hates, what God wants us to do in obedience. But what he's showing here is that Gentiles, who have never had any exposure to the law, instinctively follow what is good and what is evil. We know, because we are made in God's image, the difference between right and wrong. The Bible is revealing to us that God has given us his moral law in our hearts. The word itself, conscience, which is con-science, right? Science is knowledge, and con is something that you would combine with the word to say with. So conscience would be something with knowledge. So we instinctively know it is wrong to murder. We instinctively know it's wrong to lie. We instinctively know it's wrong to steal. And you can go on the list. Only the Bible explains that each human has a God-given knowledge of right and wrong. And science simply does not understand or can explain that. Look with me at verse 16. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So you can also look at Acts chapter 17 as well to see a parallel. But what this is talking about is the concept of justice. Our God-given conscience reveals that all sin will be judged. And the Bible says that many times. Deep down, we know that God, who created the eyes, sees all secret sins. Everything we keep to ourselves that nobody else knows about, he knows it. He who formed our minds 
remembers our past offense as if it was just occurring. God has declared that the penalty for this is death. Physical death will come first, and then Revelation chapter 21 describes that there will be a second death, which is the lake of fire, hell, which is an eternal separation from God. God cannot lie. So if he says that every sin will be judged, it will happen. God is equally as much a God of love as he is a God of justice. He is so rich in mercy that he will show compassion to all who call upon his name. But if you don't, then he will demand justice from you. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 36. You fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, and another flesh of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another flesh of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So there's two things that are mentioned here of scientific value. In verses 36 through 38, Paul is showing us that a seed must die to produce new life. Jesus also said it like that as well, didn't he? In John chapter 12, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. This portion of scripture complements that thought. In this verse, we have confirmation of two fundamental concepts of biology. One is that cells only come from other cells. And secondly is a grain must die to produce more grain. The fallen seed is surrounded by supporting cells from the old body. These supporting cells, in a miraculous way, they give their life to provide nourishment to the inner kernel. And so once planted, this inner kernel germinates, resulting in the grain plant. So we see not only that the seed must die to produce life, which was something explained thousands of years ago, but the other interesting thing here is what he says about the stars. He says that Star differs from star. Each star is unique. And before the telescope was even thought of existing, the Bible declared something that only angels and God knew. Every star varies in size and intensity. And now that we have technology that can show it, we understand it much better. But God declared it from the beginning. Stars differ from star. They're not all the same. Let's move to the book of Colossians, chapter 1. Let's look at verse 17. It says, He, being Jesus, 
He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, there's something in physics called strong nuclear force and weak nuclear force. Physicists do not understand what binds the atom's nucleus together. And yet it says that Jesus Christ is the one that binds them together. So while you may think that's a little of a stretch, it makes a lot of sense. Because God is not only the creator of all things, but he is also the sustainer of all things. Nothing can exist apart from him. And if he were to take his focus off of creation, if that was even possible, then we would cease to exist. But he doesn't. And that's why we are allowed to continue to exist. Another piece that is interesting to look at is in chapter 2. Let's look at verse 2. That their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So what the Bible is declaring, in verse 3 especially, is that science confirms what the Bible has already been saying. Science confirms the Bible. It is not a separate entity from itself. It is complementary. You can have science and you can have the Bible together, as we have seen. These insights place the Bible far above every man-made theory and other so-called inspired books that are not really inspired. For example, the Quran. The Quran will state in Surah chapter 18, verse 86, that the sun sets in a muddy pond. The Hadith contains many myths that are not real. The Book of Mormon declares that Native Americans descended from Jews, which has completely been disproven by DNA. Ancient Chinese writings contradict true scientific fact that we've discovered in today's world. But yet, they have never disproven the Bible, and it never will be because it is the true word of God. Let's turn to 1 Timothy. Look with me at chapter 6, beginning in verse 20. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. There it is. The Bible has already shown us that evolution and many things like it are pseudoscience. They are false knowledge. And the Bible predicted time and time again that there will be this pseudoscience that will enter into the world and try to lead people astray. The theory of evolution contradicts every observable evidence that we have so far. The Bible warned us in advance that there would be those who would profess profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. We understand that science is a real thing, yes, but true science agrees with the Bible because the Bible has never been wrong. And we need to remember that. We're almost done. 
Turn with me to 2 Peter, chapter 3. Let's look at verses 5 and 6. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. We can go on and on about this one, but the fossil evidence proves that the world was flooded on a global scale, and that there will be people who will deny that this is the case. This aspect of history is flatly ignored when it comes to carbon dating, to understanding what happened to the dinosaurs, how the fossils got there, geologic stratums. You have all these different aspects of physical, observable evidence and science that people will not go to the obvious solution, and that is that God flooded the world when the evidence is so plain and so clear. Additionally, Peter says this in verses 10 through 12. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the day of his coming, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. What is Scripture saying here? Scripture is stating that the elements will melt with fervent heat, meaning that God once destroyed the world with water, but the next time he destroys it, it will be with fire. Scientific observation has shown us that if elements of the atom are loosed, they will release an enormous amount of heat and energy, also known as radiation. So this is perhaps anticipating not only atomic fission, but also what is really happening with global warming, if the world is indeed warming up. Global warming is not necessarily a bad thing, because it hastens the day of the Lord. I'm not saying that we shouldn't care about our planet. That is not what you should be hearing from me, because we were instructed by God to have dominion over the earth and take care of it. However, there are some things in the natural order that we cannot prevent. And if God intends to melt everything with intense heat, we can't stop him. So it really makes me wonder sometimes if the environmental agenda is completely against God's plan in Second Peter. It really makes you wonder. I don't know that for a fact, but it sure sounds like it could be plausible. And lastly, we're going to finish our time in the book of Revelation. And let's look at chapter 11 first. Verse 18. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came. And the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. So there's a couple things to get out of here. For one is the nations were enraged. So there is corruption. And secondly is we see environmental devastation. 
Evolution imagines that things should be getting better, right? If we are evolving as a species, then we should be becoming more intelligent, more advanced in our ability to do things. But the Bible is showing us what's really going on. Things like pollution, destruction of habitats, and corrupt dominion in our nations. And it should be no wonder that the Bible predicted it all. Now, as we end this, I want to remind you of two things. Definitely spend some time today to read Revelation chapter 21. Suffering is a real thing, and there is a solution to the suffering. Neither evolution nor religion offers a solution to suffering, but God does. He offers heaven as a gift to all who trust in his Son. Like it says in verse 4, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. We as Christians know that is what is in our future, and we look forward to it with great eagerness. But for those who do not believe, there is no hope. All that is left for them is eternal suffering. So if I may, let me remind you that eternal life is available, and that is a scientific fact as well. John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish and have eternal life. We constantly, as human beings, are searching and searching for ways to reverse aging and to stop death to have immortality, to cure our physical ailments. And the good news is, there is a solution, and it's not what you can find in science. God is the source of all life, and he has the answer. He has already made a way, and he has also made a way for us to be freely forgiven, so that we can live with him forever. Romans 5.8 says it best, but God demonstrates his own love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He desires a loving, eternal relationship with each person, free from sin and fear and pain. So therefore, he sent his Son to die as a substitute for ours on the cross. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus never sinned. Therefore, he is the only one that can qualify to pay the penalty for our sins on the cross. And because he died in our place, we can live forever. He rose from the grave, defeating death, and showing that everything he said was true. So my hope is that if you're listening to this, and you are saved, renew your faith in God today. Don't doubt him any longer. Cling to him and seek his righteousness. But for those of you who have been listening, trying to disprove the Bible, or are in search for answers, here is the answer right here. God is the answer through Jesus Christ. It is time to repent. And my hope is that you can make Psalm chapter 51 your prayer. And this is a good prayer to look at for a sinner's prayer. Read your Bible. Pray, 
talk to the Lord, and live a life worthy of him. And we can show the world that the Bible truly is the authoritative, inerrant word of God. It has no errors in it, no contradictions, and it is scientifically valid. I sincerely hope you enjoyed this study, and I hope you learned something. I know I did while I was doing this. And I hope that you can use this in better defense of the faith, not only to grow in knowledge, but also to defend yourself from those in the world who are trying to actively disprove the Bible. You are now armed with more knowledge to fight, and I hope you use it for that effect. Thank you for listening. I'm Ryan, and we'll see you next time. Take care, and God bless you.